So our, we turn in God's word in the Old Testament to Amos chapter 6. Again, our sermon text for this morning. God's holy and inspired word from the Old Testament, Amos 6. Give your attention to the reading of it, God's holy word, the whole chapter. Amos 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalne and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who's in the inner parts of the house, Is there anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great houses shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Thus far the reading of God's word may bless it to us. So what is the good life? What are the vital ingredients to the La Dolce Vida? Or for us, what does the happiness look like that we have the right to pursue. Well, of course, the good life doesn't look the same for everyone, but there are plenty of common elements. First, to be healthy is essential. Second, harmonious relationships are key. A dashing husband, delightful kids, funny neighbors, and, of course, stress-free co-workers. Third, to be well-off enough that you don't have to worry about bills. You have the freedom to travel, a comfortable home and cars, and time for fun and hobbies. And finally, the security not to fear crime, storms, being laid off, and so on. Yeah, this makes up a pretty sweet life. Blessed and grateful. 
And yet, Scripture often reminds us that all this goodness isn't always very good for us. There are serious spiritual dangers to ease and security. And Amos takes Israel out to the woodshed to show us its pitfalls. So Amos has another woe to cry against his people. He cried woe in chapter 5, verse 18, and he yells it a second time here. And this pronouncement of death and doom extends from verse 1 through verse 7. In fact, there are seven points of this woe to fashion a sevenfold woe. But what is so woeful, or who is destined for this calamity and judgment? Well, he targets a particular group within Israelite society, or a class. These are the elites. They are both nobles, high class, and wealthy. You can be high-born and poor, or you can be low-class and well-off, but these are both rich and aristocratic. But it's their lifestyle that stands out more than their class. For these are they who are at ease and are secure. They feel perfectly safe and confident without a concern in the world. They're worry-free. There's nothing that they're afraid of, for tomorrow holds no dangers for them. Trouble cannot touch them. Accidents don't happen to them with their good luck. And they spend their days at ease. Toil and chores never show up on their to-do list, but it's all soft beds, long spas, and fun in the sun. They can sleep till 2 p.m. and lounge late into the night. These folks luxuriate and they're pampered. They live the life of a spoiled house cat. They nap, they sleep, they get petted, and they play. Moreover, these pampered people stretch out both in Samaria and Zion. They have villas in both capitals, in Israel in the north and Jerusalem in the south. Indeed, the aim of our Lord's woe falls on the Israelites and the Judeans. In fact, hinted here is that these posh people travel back and forth. The Israelite elite vacay in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalemites take a spa in Samaria. It's like old money in Europe. They have a Swiss chalet, a London loft, a Tuscan village, and a a Munich manor. These silver spoon folk get around. Yet note their self-estimation. They consider themselves notables of the best nation. That is, first, they value Israel, their own country, as the best in the world. We belong to the foremost nation in all of history. We are the most advanced and blessed country in the world. And being in the supreme nation, they're the most notable of Israel. Israel's the greatest nation, and they're the greatest one in the nation. They look in the mirror and they see the creme de la creme. There's nothing humble about them. They sit at the top of the world, and they know it, and they flaunt it. Though there is some irony here. This phrase about being the first nation is an allusion back to Deuteronomy 7, where God told Israel there that he chose them not because they were the best people, but because they were the last, 
the least of people. Thus their puffed up pride is hollow. So now our Lord starts to take them down a few steps. He calls them to consider other neighboring kingdoms. Remember Kalna, don't forget Hamath, and then there's Gath. Are you bigger and better than these? Now these are empires who were close by, who were once rich and powerful, but then they fell. It's like saying today to some proud country, consider the Roman Empire or the Persian Kingdom. Those massive superpowers also came to an end. For every nation has a shelf life and expiration date. The Israelite elite considers themselves to be invincible and imperishable, but they too will spoil and be tossed to the chickens. In fact, these, uh, the more these plushies are in denial, the quicker the disaster gathers on the horizon. Verse 3. It says, you put far away the day of disaster. You push off any possibility of an evil day coming. Now, this disaster recalls the day of the Lord, mentioned in the previous chapter, that it's all darkness and no light. But it also plays off the term, a good day. In the Old Testament, a good day was the phrase for a feast day, a grand, old, and happy party. Well, these upper-crust gentry live every day as a party, and they reject that doom will ever come upon them. But in reality, as they push away the day of disaster, they actually pull closer the seat of violence or the dwelling of violence. Now, violence here has a double sense. First, it's the violence of their own wickedness. They commit more violent sin. Second, it is the violence of judgment that will fall upon them. This is the matching of sin and punishment. Thus, as they push away any possibility of the day of disaster, they pull closer more violence. They increase their sin, which in turn accelerates their judgment. Therefore, the Lord continues to pour out condemnation on their multiplying sins, And he does so by pinpointing one particular institution in Israel, which were called the Marzaic Feast. There's no good translation for these grand banquets that's called the Marzaic, mentioned in verse 7. Moreover, we have widespread evidence for the Marzaic being present in the ancient world. Within Israel's neighbors, the Marzaic existed from the 1400s B.C. to the 3rd century A.D., over 1,500 years. And the Marzaic were exclusive clubs with limited membership, mainly for the rich and highborn. And they got together for fancy entertainment with gourmet food and massive drinking. Their meals were also in devotion to a god. They were religious, too. As well as the Marzaic might have been connected to the cult of the dead. Basically, for us, they're a combination of the Masons with an expensive country club. And this worldly institution of exclusive luxury is alive and well in Israel. Indeed, Amos basically describes a Marzaic feast in verses 4 through 6. Note, 
They stretch out on beds inlaid with ivory. They lounge on cushy couches. These are the first couch potatoes. Next on the menu, you found the costliest meats and finest delicacies. There was grass-fed organic lamb and wagyu beef. Caviar from the Caspian Sea was overnighted to them. Of course, any good feast needs some entertainment, and so they're serenaded with music. Note that says they played song on harps, and they devised new tunes on musical instruments as if they were David. As you know, David was known as the sweet singer of Israel. He was Beethoven and Mozart all in one for the Israelites. Well, these pompous nobles pretend to be just as good as him. They brag, we surpass David. And of course, there's drinking, but forget about glasses. Bring the wine in bowls. Magnums are only good enough for them, and they'll drain one in a single gulp. And while they're stuffing their gullets and pickling their livers, extravagant oils are poured and rubbed onto their gaudy bodies. This was the glitzy mosaic, which thrived for the notables of Israel in Samaria and in Zion. This hedonistic and Bacchanalian fraternity ruled in Israel. And there's one more thing uh, that Amos picks out about them. It says they have no concern for the ruin of Joseph, verse 6. As they eat their $600 steaks, they don't give a hoot about the current problems in their country or the future demise of their nation. They luxuriate only for today and only for themselves. Their gluttony makes them worry-free, indulgent, indolent, and decadent. They don't give a gram of care about others. They love themselves better than anyone else can, and so they fret not about the present or the future ruin of the house of Joseph. Of course, the Lord will suffer their intemperate arrogance only for so long They brag of being the first, only the best will do for them, and so the Lord has a first in store for them. They flaunt themselves as the first in the world, and so the Lord will make them the first exiles, verse 7. The poetic justice of God will make them first, will make the first among sinners the first in the judgment. All the revelry and lounging at their Marzaic feast will come to naught. Their good life of ease and fine dining was not good for them. Their wealth corrupted their, so- their spirits. It gave cirrhosis to their souls. They forgot about God. Who needs the Lord when you have it all already? And so the Lord is delivering them over to curse and death. Woe is the destiny for these lazy and life as a party elites. Indeed, now that the Lord, or now the Lord continues to lay out the horrible destruction he has in store for them and their pride. In verse 8, the Lord swears an oath by his own self. Unfailing and eternal, eternally sure are the oaths of the Lord. There is no escaping 
the sworn word of God, and this one is a doozy. First, the Lord carves in stone his hatred for the pride of Jacob. He abhors their arrogance and strongholds. And this is a terrifying reversal. For Amos takes this phrase, the pride of Jacob, from elsewhere. In Psalm 47, excuse me, in Psalm 47, the Lord states that he loved the pride of Jacob. For pride here can have a positive meaning as well as a negative one. Positively, the pride of Israel refers to all the rich blessings of God within the promised land. This pride covers the gratitude and wonder for green pastures, fat herds, lush forest, and the majestic cities given by God. This is kind of like saying you're proud of your daughter for her good accomplishments. It is fitting praise for that which is honorable and good, granted from the Lord's hands. So at one time, the Lord loved the honorable features of Jacob. Yet their positive pride can quickly sour. This is when the object of your praise turns from God toward yourself. This pride says, my hand earned for myself. The credit due to the Lord is taken to yourself. Thus Israel now boasts in her rich prosperity as being all they're doing. Look at what our hands won for us. And so the Lord, Lord's love turns to hatred. The hubris of the Israelites is odious to the, to the Lord. And what is hateful to God must be put down. The Lord then forecasts total destruction. He's giving over the city and all that is in it. The town's population will shrink to ten people in a single home and they too will perish. The puny remnant of ten will die. And as they bury their last few, the undertakers will not even mention the name of Yahweh. In the place of ruin, to name the God who authored the devastation only brings more curse. They will be too afraid to even name the name of Yahweh. Next, the Lord promises to demolish every house, small and great, hutch and mansion, will become bits and splinters. Note here that the Lord's wrath falls on the rich and poor alike. His condemnation targets the wealthy nobles, but the poor are not exempt from the doom. The poor may be abused, but they're not innocent. Indeed, the Lord rebukes how demented and deranged their disobedience is as a whole. Note he asked the question, do horses run on rocks or cliffs? Can you plow a rock face with cows? Well, of course not. To gallop a stallion on a cliff face is ridiculously dumb. To plow granite with cows is silly stupid. And yet with the same level of intelligence Israel has turned justice into poison. They morphed righteousness into wormwood. That perfect pair of justice and righteousness that represented total obedience for life, Israel has corrupted this into poison and venom. Totally bereft of reason, they contaminate honey into vinegar. They distort ice cream into kale. 
poor and rich alike, consider obedience as lethal for life, while crime and corruption is the secret to the good life. And God gives an example of this in verse 13. At their feast, they rejoice in two war victories. Now, Lodabar is a town in Gilead, and Carnaim is a city in Bashan. And we know that both these Israelite towns had been captured by Syria, but recently the Israelite army retook them. Thus, the Israelites brag about their military victories. We took Carnaim by our strength for ourselves. The hubris in their own might is disgusting. Note, we did it, our power, for ourselves. God has no place in their victory. It was all them. This is the boastful barado and braggart blustering of their conquest. Of course, as Proverbs remind us, pride comes before the fall. As one commentator put it, their preening pride pompously precedes their precipitous fall. Thus the Lord is raising up a nation, and this nation will march on Israel and oppress them from Lebo Hamath to the the brook of the Arabah. And there's two historical references in this last verse. First, this foreign oppression is the same burden Israel suffered under Egypt or in Egypt under Pharaoh. This coming oppression, oppression then, rewinds the clock. It will take them back to the same state they were in in Egypt. It will undo the exodus. As God's chosen and redeemed people, Israel will become unchosen and no longer redeemed. Second, these two place names encompass the entire territory of Israel. Lebo Hamath is on the northern border, and the Arabah is on its southern border. Moreover, this line nearly quotes 2 Kings 14, where the prophet Jonah preached that in mercy, God expanded Israel back to Lebo Hamath in the north and the Arabah in the south. The judgment here, though, through Amos, cancels then the preaching of Jonah. Out of pity through Jonah, the Lord blessed Israel with a massive empire and wealth. He graciously bestowed on them the good life. But what did they do with their sweet life? They arrogantly abused it to forget God, to reject obedience, and to indulge themselves in hedonism. They took credit for God's gifts and boasted in their success as it was all theirs. And such hubris couch potatoes, they lounged around as invincible. And so the Lord is withdrawing his grace and blessings. What he gave, he will take away. A nation will come and topple the obese pride of Israel, and the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The downfall of fat Jacob will leave a crater like a mediator, and all the king's men will not be able to put Israel back together again. 
Therefore, what we see in this woe and oracle against Israel is the warning against pride and self-assured wealth. The spiritual dangers that Israel succumbed to are still snares for us. First, there's ease and indulgence of wealth. Sure, wealth is a blessing from God that we have the freedom to use and to enjoy. But as with so many of God's gifts, we sinners are superb at abusing them. We pervert the good into an evil. Self-indulgence, laziness, over-self-confidence, and hedonism, these are death deadly to faith. Abuse of luxury makes our faith, faith fat. It gives us heart disease. Christ calls us to self-denial and to serve others. But ease and lounging pampers our selfishness. It makes us care nothing for the sickness of others. Second, there's pride. The ego of Israel here was bloated to the point of insanity and irrationality. To take credit for yourselves for your own accomplishment, instead of seeing that it all comes from God, is bereft of reason. It's spiritual lunacy. Self-praise is delusional. The luxuriant pride and lazy hubris of Israel then is a call for us to be humble. It reminds us that the hardships and leannesses of life is God's fitness for us. Not having enough, having to be frugal, living modestly, these are God's kindnesses to shield us from the temptations of wealth and ease. And yet, first and foremost, the Lord protects us from pride and indulgence by giving us a servant Savior. Jesus Christ, to him rightfully belongs all do praise, for he created the world. He is God from all eternity. All that is good and wonderful issues through from the hands of the Son. And yet, this equality with God, Jesus didn't grasp. The riches of heaven, he did not hold on to. Rather, as God, Jesus became man, and as rich, he became poor. The value and the beauty of humanity is a good thing. But compared to the, the form of eternal divinity, human nature is a sad thing. But Jesus took on cramped and rickety flesh, and he became an unimpressive human. As Isaiah 53 says, his appearance was not attractive or noteworthy. Jesus wasn't a handsome man. He wasn't tall and ripped. His status was not that of upper class. He didn't own homes or make the big bucks. Rather, he had no place to lay his head and no paycheck. When people insulted him, he did not talk back. Rather, as a lowly servant, Jesus fulfilled the whole law, even to the point of death. As Considered the scum of the earth, Jesus hung naked on a tree for our redemption. 
And why did God in the flesh endure such such shameful poverty? He did it to provide for us what we are totally incapable of. Jesus applied righteousness for us who are totally depraved. He paid the debt that we could not pay because we were helpless. He became our helper. By his poverty, you were granted the wealth of heaven. In love, Jesus laid down his life of infinite value as a ransom for us sinners, we who were worth, worth less than nothing. The infinite died for the finite. This is the reality of our salvation and of God's all-consuming grace towards you. Therefore, in the light of Christ's servant salvation of us, he pronounces upon us the blessing for being humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. To think that we are something brings a curse. But to know that we are nothing and to flop ourselves on Jesus alone, this is the gift and grace of God our Father. Thus the cross of Christ and the gospel of our salvation is the best medicine and antibiotic to ward off pride and indulgence within us. Indeed, as we ever keep the cross of Jesus before us, then it becomes a joy for us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Whether we have a little or we have a lot, there is no higher privilege and delight for us than to be like our Savior. So then may we remain humble servants of God and of each other so that we might praise our perfect Lord and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. Amen. Let us pray.